Well, good morning, everyone. That's loud. How's everyone this morning? Excellent, excellent. Happy New Year. Oh, well, thank you, Charlie. That was nice. Well, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Matthew. Um, it's a real privilege and honor to be with you this morning. And um, uh, would you please pray with me? Father, we pray this morning that um, you would open up our hearts. Lord, you would open our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit. For Lord, you, Father, have opened your heart and you have given us your Son. And you, Jesus, have opened your heart and you have given us your Spirit. And you have given us new life. And I pray this morning that by your Holy Spirit, Lord, you would pour forth uh, your anointing and that you would open our minds and our imaginations to receive you and all you would have for us this morning. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, John of the Cross is a 16th century monk, priest, theologian. And uh, many of you may know him. He is perhaps most famous for his teaching of the dark night of the soul. Um, but among other things, he made love poetry. But he said this. This is a quote. It's not love poetry. I will spare you that. Um, he said this. In spite of their commentaries, the holy doctors, together with all those who could be numbered in their ranks, have never fully interpreted Scripture. Have never fully interpreted Scripture. Human words cannot enclose what the Spirit of God reveals. The holy doctors innumerable numbers of them. These are the uh, ancient commentators. These are theologians. He said, can never fully interpret scripture. And human words cannot enclose what the spirit of God reveals. Now, when I think of this, when I think of what John is saying, he's describing how even in the holy scriptures, there is a limitation. If God, who is infinite, who is eternal, who is boundless, who is unchanging, who is always and ever the same, if he is the infinite one, how can any human word grasp and complete his nature? Even the scriptures are signs that point to that God. And as I was thinking about this, uh, this quote, I couldn't help but think about Lucy in uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, The Last Battle. You guys know what I'm talking about? Okay. Um, Lucy, uh, in, in The Last Battle, was talking to Mr. Tumnus, and Mr. Tumnus is one of her dear good friends, the, one of the first people she meets in Narnia. And it's one of the last people, of course, she comes to see at the end of all things. And when they're in the garden... Uh, the garden is like an Edenic figure or moment, and Lucy has this epiphany, and she says to Mr. Tumnus, I see, she said at last thoughtfully, I see now, this garden is far bigger inside than it is outside. Of course, daughter of Eve, said the fawn, the further up and the further in you go, the bigger everything gets. The inside is larger than the outside. Lucy looked hard at the garden and saw that it was not really a garden, but a whole world. And she says, uh, with, she said, with its own rivers and woods and sea and mountains, and yes, said Mr. Tumnus, like an onion, except that as you continue to go in and in, each circle gets larger than the last. And friends, I, I commend to you that John chapter 2 this morning, which is where we're going to focus a lot of our attention, John 2 and John 19, is like that garden. As we enter into it, just when we think we've understood it, just when we think, oh, I get this, it's, just a, it's a wedding feast, and Jesus is a great guy, and he's turning water into wine, it opens up, and there's so much more going on here. And so let's turn there. So if you have it in your bulletin, 
Uh, it is on some page that Jack will tell you about, per our tradition. Um, uh, we're going to turn to verse 11. We're going to start at the end. Um, in verse 11, John says this, This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Now, the, the reason we're starting in verse 11 is because John here gives us a clue about the, the, the nature, the trajectory of the book, but also his concerns. So if you notice, his disciples believed in him. Belief in Christ, the Messiah, is the, John's chief concern in this book. He said that later in the book that these things are written so that you might have life, that you would believe in Christ and have life in him. And so at this first sign, the disciples are the ones who receive the epiphany of the Lord, and they believe in him. But on what basis do they receive the epiphany of the Lord? It is by the sign. And this wedding feast is the first of his signs in which he turns water to wine. And one thing you have to understand about the signs in John's gospel, there are seven of them, the number of perfection, and that's very intentional. And later at the end of the book, John will say that Jesus did many more signs. So there are countless others that he could have done. And actually he says that he could, he could not fill all the books that would contain the world to consider all of them. But John chooses seven very intentionally. And those signs, it's as if Jesus is taking up the Old Testament, all the symbols, all the rituals, all of the signs and symbols of, of, of what the Messiah would be and do in the life of Israel. And he's gathering them up, and then he's pointing forward to what he's ultimately going to accomplish in himself. And so the signs have a forward look. The signs are not about themselves, the events themselves. They point forward to a testimony of something else. And that is what John says is his glory. And it's a greater glory. And that glory will ultimately be fulfilled in John's gospel in John chapter 19 at the cross. And so we will turn there momentarily. But there are two themes I want to give you this morning that I want you to write down. Two theological themes that are really important in John's gospel. The first is the perfection of the old covenant. The perfection of the old covenant. Through the more glorious work of Jesus. The perfection of the old covenant through the more glorious work of Jesus. And in John's prologue, if you, t if you have your Bible, you can turn there, but if not, just listen carefully. In John chapter 1, verse 14 through 18, John outlines for us that Jesus has come in contrast to Moses, right? The fullness of grace and truth have come in Jesus in contrast to the law that was given through Moses. Later in the prologue, the disciples will say, we have come, come we have found the one for whom law, the law and the prophets have spoken. So in John's gospel, there was a contrast between the law and the old covenant and the new covenant in Jesus and what he will do. And these are the greater things, Jesus says, that we will see in chapter 1, verse 50. So the perfection of the old covenant is the first one. The second one is union with God. A major theme in John's gospel. Union with God. But union with God the Father, in the Son, and by the Holy Spirit. This is Trinitarian theology at its best in John's gospel. And for John, that belief that he wants to produce in us, and for all who would listen and hear and read the scripture and read the gospel of John, that belief is what John will call life or eternal life. And it's eternal life not because it is endless and infinite as a, a mere time marker. It's eternal because it is a qualitative experience of life because God himself is eternal and God himself is life. And if you have union with God, you cannot help but have eternal life. It is the only way you could ever exist if you have life in union with God. And so union with God is another big theme. And in fact, Jesus will say this in chapter 14. He will say, because I live, you also live. And in that day, you will know 
that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. In God. And so for the first of his signs, why, what better place would Jesus choose to act than at a wedding? The wedding, and if you turn to chapter 2, the wedding at Cana, right, is a celebration of all the goodness of God in creation. It's the pinnacle, the height of God's creative work. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created human beings, male and female. He created them, and he joined them together in marriage. It is the height of physical union, but it is also a picture, as we know from out the scriptures, of what God wants to do in and through himself in us. He wants to join himself to us. And so the union of husband and wife in Jewish tradition was a celebration of God's goodness in creation. It was a reenactment of the marriage of Adam and Eve. Often uh, they would restate the words in Genesis, this at last is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Bear that in mind. This is the one flesh union. And so while Jesus is also celebrating the goodness of God's creation, he is also doing something more. There's something more that he wants to do through that sign, through that symbol. He's going to do something at the cross in the culmination of that. And this is God's future work. Because he wants to restore, we know the story, right? We know what happened with Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis 3. The story tells us uh, that they fell and they brought sin into the world and it broke that relationship with God. It broke that union with God and it caused a divorce. As Lewis wrote the book, The Great Divorce, right? It caused a divorce, it caused a split, an exile from our true home, which is God. But the prophecy in Genesis 3.15 that this said, said that the seed of the woman, the seed of the woman, would crush the head of the serpent. And that seed is the Messiah. And as Scott preached last Sunday, though I wasn't here, I did listen, as a good parishioner should. Um, uh, The sword and the stone, right? Arthur, when Arthur shows up and pulls the sword from the stone, everyone knows that the king has come. And for Christ to come at the wedding feast of Cana and to begin to speak and act in the ways that he does is a clear sign to the Jewish community that the Messiah is come, that he's doing things that he was foretold that he would do. So this is a big moment. So let's turn there and look more deeply at it. There are three words, three W words, and notice that. I didn't notice that. W, all right? Three W words for us today, all right? The first is wine. So write that down. Wine. The second is woman. And the third is water. Wine, women, woman, and water, the essentials of life. Um, that was not planned. That was, that was purely of the Spirit. Um, the, the wine of the Spirit, of course. All right. Um, so the, look at verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana. Third day, first off. When you hear the third day in the Bible, what do you think of? Resurrection. Of course, you're supposed to think of the resurrection. And that's, in fact, what John wants you to do. But what's more is it's also the day in the Old Testament of theophanies. A theophany is a fancy word for a God showing, an epiphany, in other words. For example, Mount Moses went up on Mount Sinai on the third day and received the law. He received also the, the appearing of God on the third day. So this is already set up as a theophanic moment. Now you'll notice, it's interesting, all the persons in the story, who is named? Someone. It's a Sunday school answer. Jesus. Yeah, Jesus is named, right? He's the only one named. The only one. 
right? The disciples are not named. They're named in chapter 1, but they're not named in chapter 2, right? They will come to believe, as we know. Mary, is she named? Mary, did you know? She was not named, right? She is only called mother and woman. Interesting, okay? Master of the feast, not named. Bridegroom, not named, right? No one is named but Jesus. It is not because John doesn't like people. Um, He likes people very much, Um, but it's because I think it's suggestive of what he's trying to do. He's trying to create a narrative that is pointing toward um, a functional role of each of these people, a symbolic role of each of these people, and Jesus is taking center stage. In fact, the bridegroom, we're told in chapter 3 of John, is actually Jesus. The true bridegroom is Jesus himself. And so as we look further, we see, therefore, what happens here. The wine ran out, verse 2. The wine ran out. And then Mary says, they have no wine. Okay? It's pretty clear. Literally here, when it says the wine ran out, it says the wine gave out. It was lacking. It failed. In John's gospel, wine plays a very significant role that we don't have a lot of time to get into every detail, but suffice it to say for now that the wine represents the Old Covenant. And in fact, we know that the wine of the Old Covenant, um, is, it's in the Old Testament scriptures, there's lots of re- um, references to that, and we'll look at one in, in, in the New Testament as well. But when Mary says they have no wine, this is a more than a mere observation of fact. She isn't just saying, hey, there's just no wine, right? which would be a, a bummer in itself, but there's, there's more going on here. She's suggesting that Jesus take action because she knows more than anyone else about who Jesus is and what he's come to do. And so if, if you're in doubt about the, the wine representing the Old Covenant, if you turn to verse 6, right, you'll notice it says, now there were six stone water jars there for Jewish rites of purification. Already we have the ritual Jewish imagery going on here as well. In Matthew's Gospel, for example, and other parallel Gospels, Jesus will speak about the wedding feast, the bridegroom, why the disciples of Jesus do not fast when John's and the Pharisees do. And Jesus will say, he'll speak about the new wine and old wine, new wineskins, old wineskins, talking about the old and the new covenant. So this is a very clear reference to the old covenant. In fact, as we read this morning, as as Michelle read this morning in Hosea, um, if you turn there briefly, Hosea, we're told, right, you'll see all the references to the wine. Um, In verse 18 and following, I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the creeping things of the ground. But above that, we have the speaking of vineyards. Below that, we have speaking about the wine. Other texts speak of this. Uh, Isaiah 25, um, Isaiah uh, 54, 55, Amos, there are other places we could look. The point here is that Jesus in, ref- in John, referencing the wine, is saying that when the wine gave out, the old covenant came to its close. The old covenant basically could no longer produce, right? It came to its end, and something greater has to take its place. And so when Mary says they have no wine, Jesus picks up on this because she says, or he says to her, woman, What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. This is very curious, right? If it was a simple statement of fact, he wouldn't take it quite so seriously, right? And so what Jesus is saying here, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. He's looking forward to the time when his hour will come and what that will mean. And in John's gospel, that is the place of his ultimate glory. And that is at the cross. 
And so Jesus, of course, what he does, Matthew and Mary says, do whatever he tells you, and that's significant in its own right, but we don't have time to get into that. He has them fill the water pots to the brim with water. The fullness of them. And when he turns the water to wine, the master of the feast says, you have kept the good wine until now. It is customary to have the good wine first, the first arrival, but the good wine he has saved till later. And he assumes it's the bridegroom, but in fact it's been the true bridegroom that's turned the water to wine. And here in the new, and it's a, it's a symbol, the transformation is a symbol of the new covenant. And so this sign points forward, as I said, to the glory that would come in Christ. And so in, the, in your sermon notes page, you'll see that there's a printing of uh, John 19. So if you turn there, we'll take a look at that in a moment. You guys tracking with me? Sweet. All right. So John chapter 19. I'm going to read this uh, portion of this uh, for us. Keep in mind the three W's, right? Wine, woman, water. The three essentials of life. Wine, women, water. Okay? They're here in John 19. Verse 25. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Verse 34. Now one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you may also believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Did you see the wine, the, wine, the woman, and the water? Okay, we're going we're to look at that more deeply in a moment. Notice here at the cross, uh, we have uh, Jesus' mother, Mary. She's here. She is still unnamed. The disciple whom Jesus loved is John. Um, he is in the other parts of the gospel as well. But you'll notice that we have the mother of Jesus and Jesus calling her woman. He says, woman, behold your son. And then he says to the, to the disciple, behold your mother. Now, this is in fact a moment of concern and care for Jesus' earthly mother. There's no doubt about that. But there's more going on than just that. The only instances in John's gospel of mother and woman related to Mary is in John chapter 2 and in John chapter 19. These are clearly meant to be bookended with each other. 
And so together we, we're supposed to take the, the elements of John 2 and what it all meant as a forward look and try to understand John 19 in light of that and then John 19 back in light of, uh, in, of chapter 2 as well. You'll notice too it says, when all was finished, it was all now finished, he said. Notice, fulfill in verse 28. And then in verse 30, he says, it is finished. That word there means it is complete. It is fulfilled. It is made perfect. Our first theological theme, the perfection of the old covenant. It has now come to its fullness of completion in, in, in the cross. What's also significant in light of that scripture, in light of that scriptural fulfillment, and that contrast between the uh, old covenant and the new, isn't it curious in verse 29? What is available to Jesus to drink? Sour wine. Wine that's gone bad. Right? Wine that's not at its best. And he takes that sour wine and he receives it into himself with a hyssop branch. Now, there was a whole lot going on there, too, related to the Passover and all the rest, which we don't have time to get into. There's so many levels of this. Remember the garden? Yeah, lots of on onions, layers. Okay, so he receives the sour wine, and then he says, it is finished. In John 2, we saw Jesus entering in the, into the celebration of the marriage of Adam and Eve, the marriage of the first creation, because our, as Chesterton said, um, the part of, about God that we see in Christ is his mirth, is his joy. And God wants to bring us his joy. And he wants to celebrate the joy of the creation. But it's here in John 19 that we see that he's also going to take care of the break in that marriage union. Not just of Adam and Eve, but of the whole creation and of the relationship especially with humanity and with God. If you turn to verse 34... When the soldier pierced his side with a spear, it says at once there came out blood and water. This is, John is the only gospel writer to include this detail from the cross. And if you caught it in the epistle reading this morning, did you catch about John speaking of the testimony of the three? The spirit, the water, and the blood. It's the same author of the gospel of John. His theology is a really cool study sometimes. Study the gospel of John and study all the epistles of John and look at how all the different theological connections you can make between those that are really, really rich and beautiful. But what does this mean? What does the blood and the water flowing out of Christ's side mean? Well, as Jesus celebrated the marriage feast at Cana, a reenactment of the marriage of Adam and Eve, and also a forward look at what God was going to do to restore that relationship that was once broken, from the earliest days of the church, when Jesus' side was pierced and the water and the blood flowed out, it was a recognition that it was the new Adam who was offering himself and birthing the new Eve. Remember Adam? How did Eve come forth from Adam? His rib, or from his side, right? He was, he was God put him to sleep and opened him up and brought forth Eve. The mother of all who live is what her name means. Adam in Hebrew simply means man. So from the first man came the first woman, and later she's named Eve because she would be the mother of all who live. And from the earliest days of the church, it was recognized that when Jesus' side was opened and the water and blood flowed out, it was the gift 
of new life to a new people, the creation of a new community called the church. And it's Mary and it's the disciple whom Jesus loves that are representative, right? The fact that the, a human being, one single person, could represent a whole nation is not foreign to the Bible. In the Old Testament, Jacob is re- used as reference to the whole of, of, of Israel. J- um, Joseph is used in the same fa- fashion. Um, Scott preached a sermon a few, a few months ago um, on mother church and how Israel was considered a mother and now the, the church is considered a mother. You can read about that in Galatians and Revelation. And so this shouldn't surprise us. And with John's highly symbolic language here, it becomes clear that he's doing something. He's drawing our attention to something. But the water and the blood, what does that mean? Right? If the water and the blood are flowing out, that has to mean something. And commentators have made um, much of the sort of physiological side of this, the biological side of it. And while, it's also, while that's certainly true, um, there's more than just that. There's a spiritual meaning here. The water and the blood that flow out from the earliest days of the church, it's understood that it meant baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Remember in the epistle of John, it said there are three that testify, the spirit, the water, and the blood. And then talk about having fellowship with God in the life of the church in the context of John's epistle. But in John 19, if you look in verse 30, when he had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, it is perfected. And he bowed his head, and the ESV translated, and he gave up his spirit. In the Greek, it is he gave up the spirit. Not any spirit. It could, it, it, there's probably a little double meaning here. He gave up, yes, his life, his own spirit, but it's a giving of the Holy Spirit. And this is anticipated for us in John chapter 7, if you go back there and read it. Right? When Christ would be glorified, Right? He would, said he would give the Spirit, but he doesn't just give the Spirit. He gives the Spirit, and he gives the water and the blood. And so the union of God theme is clearly seen here. That just as Eve was brought forth from the side of Christ, so, from the side of Adam, so the church is brought forth from the side of the new Adam. And union with God is achieved. Christ, who comes from the heart of the Father, returns to the heart of the Father. Christ, whose own heart was opened, is the entry for us into his own life by the Spirit and through union with him in baptism and through our continual abiding in him through the Lord's Supper. So this morning as I, as I close, um, what does this mean for us? Well, I hope if nothing else, it's simply, it's a simple sign, not a simple sign, but it's a sign and picture, a profound sign and picture of what God has been doing from the beginning of the world. He's loved us into existence. He created us in his love and in his goodness to share his life with us. And even when we lost that, even when we divorced him, so to speak, he has called us to himself. He has come to the very depths of our sin and despair and our darkness, of our loneliness, of our exile, of all of our fragmentation, all of it, and he wants to heal it. But it can only be done through a full restoration, through a a union with God. And so 
as most of us know, Christ Church Madison is a community coming home to Jesus and his church. In John 14, Jesus said that I am in the Father, you are in me, we are all in the Father. But then he says, and we will make our home with you. We'll make our home with you. John 1, John tells us in the prologue that Jesus comes from the very side or the bosom of the Father, that is to say from the Father's heart. To return home is to be found in the Father's heart. Last week was the baptism. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. If you are found in the Son, the Father is well pleased with you. You are not alienated. You are not exiled. You are not divorced from God. He wants to draw us into himself in union with him. And the Hosea text we'll close with. Did you hear the language there? It's so beautiful. By the way, if you haven't read Hosea, it's a beautiful text. Um, It's a beautiful story about how God commands a prophet to marry a prostitute in a physical act, right, to display before the people of Israel God's undying love for his people. But God says, therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards. And then jumping down, he says, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me forever. Before Jesus was resurrected and ascended, he gave us a feast. And this is uh, about to be prepared. And it's a perpetual feast. It's being practiced and um, reenacted every Sunday and, and often every day across the world. And it's a perpetual not only reminder, but a participation in the marriage supper that he's already started and that will be culminated in the new creation when the new creation is fully and finally here. But he's begun that new creation and he begins it in his church. If anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. And so to be joined to God is to begin to be a part of that new creation in him. Let's pray. Father, you've loved us into life and existence. You keep us in life. And Lord, though our mortal lives are fraught with so much, Lord, you know our frame because you, Jesus, have become one of us. In your life and your incarnation and your death and resurrection, Lord, you have made a way. You've opened yourself to us and you've invited us to come in to make our home with you. And so, Lord, we pray that by your Holy Spirit you would do that work Lord, you continue to move and work within our hearts and our minds and our imaginations. And Lord, by these sacramental signs, that we would also participate, Lord, in your life. Lord, that you would renew us, you would strengthen us, that you would keep us in your peace and keep us in your love. And Lord, keep us in your heart. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.